The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today I have a delightful treat for you and for me. I can't wait to uh, talk to this charming lady, Joan Juliet Buck. She is an American novelist, critic, essayist, and editor. She served as editor-in-chief of Vogue Paris from 1994 to 2001, and I can tell you (laughs) that that was no small feat. I mean, not only, of course, is it difficult to be the editor-in-chief of such a... uh, prestigious magazine, but having lived in Paris, I can tell you that Parisians do not want (laughs) Americans to um, be the editor. You know, they don't think Americans can speak French, no less be the editor of a magazine like Vogue. And she was, um, her her list of magazines that she's been a contributing editor to, a a writer for all different kinds of connections to just all the top magazines. It's like, this is like, Joan, you have lived my fantasy life um, between traveling. I mean, yes, I've traveled, lived in Europe too, but not for as many years as you did. And you're traveling, (coughs) excuse me, between America and London and Paris and Cannes and Italy and just all of the places that we all, you know, it's, it's a woman's, in particular, a woman's fantasy to do all of that and to write about all of the things that you've written about. I mean, sex, not only fashion and, and, um, and glamour and celebrities and all of that, but controversial things like sex and leaders of state, and we'll get to all of that. Um, she... So some of these, she's been a contributing editor to Vogue, Vanity Fair, Traveler, The New Yorker. Uh, those are only a small number of magazines that she has been a contributor to in one way or the other. She's also written two novels, The Only Place to Be and Daughter of the Swan. Currently, her e- essays appear in Harper's Bazaar. You will recognize and her. really fun. What did you say? And they're really fun, the essays in Harper's Bazaar. I'm really I'm proud of them. Sh- I'm sure. Um, I, um, and you will recognize her. Of course, this is radio, so you're, you're, you're not going to literally recognize her, but you will remember her from the movie Julie and Julia. She was the head of the cooking school um, there. And quite a, that was a great character. Uh, and she's been on television in Supergirl, so she's been an actress as well as a writer. Um, an author and, a, and an editor and a writer. Uh, basically, Joan, you've been a Renaissance woman and um, a world traveler and uh, just 
you know, this, I mean, these are, this is like what a woman dreams about in college, which is kind of ironic since you left Sarah Lawrence <laughs> to do your first <laughs> magazine job. Yeah. Well, why don't we, and... go ahead. Yeah, I was impatient to get on with life. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Why well, just learn about it when you can actually be doing, about, doing it and learning that way? Um, yes. Well, let's start, if it's okay with you, um, I mean, the, the first of all, let me just give a little introduction to this book, The Price of Illusion. That is her current memoir who is, that is out now in March and has already been hailed as um, something that will clearly be dazzling and a, um, a New York Times bestseller. Uh, if it hasn't been already, I don't know. Has the pre, has the, have pre-sales made it a New York Times bestseller yet? Or um, I don't know about that, but I do know that yesterday I got four stars in USA Today. Wow! And and that in Entertainment Weekly, Price of Illusion is at the top of the nonfiction list with um, with an A minus. I was so proud to get that A minus from Entertainment Weekly. I was completely thrilled. And today is the publication day. Today is ah. the book's birthday. Oh, well, I am honored that you are doing this show on that date. Um, I'm thrilled to be doing it. <laughs> well, now, of course, uh, and of course, it's going to be a movie. Has it been optioned yet for a movie? I mean, it just I, cries I, I, out. I don't know if it's a movie as much as perhaps, perhaps an extraordinarily long <laughs> TV maxi series. Yes, that that's possible too. Yes. Well, okay. Um, you know, I, I guess that what I, I don't want to say much myself, since uh, you're the one to say the most about your book, the best about your book. But but I just want to sort of put it in a context that what I think is interesting, the book called The Price of Illusion, um, uh, traces Joan's life obviously, a memoir, um, but, and her struggles with, since, since childhood um, and being brought up in a childhood filled with illusions, um, struggling to sort of make her way in life and find out what is real. And Indeed. I will, at that, I will turn it over to you, other than to say that, you know, um, this is so true today. <laughs> I mean, it could have been written... Uh, this year, about the last 20 years, you know, um, I mean, that we're still living. It's <laughs> Americans, well, people around the world, but especially Americans, uh, live their life for illusion and in illusion and um, never, most, never really get to know what's real. So why don't you take it from there? Well, didn't Maslow, what year did Maslow write that book where he talked about people consuming the menu rather than the meal? mm and the uh, which means people are responding to the description of their life rather than to what it actually is. And, yeah. you know, this tendency we all have to go, oh, my God, you know, I'm in a wonderful relationship. Why aren't I happier? Or, yeah. you know, if you're unmarried, why aren't I married? If you're married, why aren't I free? No, but that, that's a different thing. It's really the menu, the description of your life and what people carry in their heads about their lives that doesn't match reality. And, you know, sometimes you can call this optimism. Um, (laughs) But um, the way I was brought up, my parents left Hollywood in 1952, and we lived 
with my mother's parents who hadn't had money before the war and after the war they suddenly appeared to have money. And we lived in very grand rented houses around Europe, including a pink marble palace in the suburbs of Paris, (laughs) which had me convinced that I was a princess because we lived in a palace. Yes. But I was this little child who, because of how tiny I was when we moved to France, I learned French very fast. It became my first language. So basically, from the age of three and a half, four, I was translating for four adults. Huh. Wow. And I was, talk- I was talking to these foreign French people. And so I, I took my responsibilities very seriously, and I got them early. And my first playmate was a friend of my parents who was a German movie director called Robert C. Odmack, who must have been in his 50s. And I was three and a half, four. And I really had fun playing with Robert. <laughs> But I didn't. I didn't know any children my age because we huh. moved around so much. Yeah. Okay. And tell us a little bit about the the people, the glamorous people, uh, additional glamorous people who peopled your childhood. Well, there was. Um, my father had been a producer in Hollywood and didn't get much work in Europe, but he discovered a fantastic French comic called Jacques Tati, who had made a movie called Mr. Hulot's Holiday that is one of the great classics, one of the funniest films ever, kind of a silent film. And he brought it to America. And Jacques Tati, who was a comic genius, would sometimes dress up as the driver and pick up my parents' guests and then behave like a total lunatic. <laughs> um, so I, I always, from an early age, I appreciated the wild fantasy and the humor of adults. If adults weren't funny, I didn't like them, and the only people (laughs) I played with were adults, so they had to be funny. Hmm. Um, There was a night in the Pink Marble Palace when Fellini came to dinner and and pretended to play the golden harp in the living room that was missing a few strings, and he didn't really make any noise, but that was fine because he was pretending. Uh. Hmm. And then when I was 11, we had moved to London, and my father said, we're going to spend Christmas with your godfather. And I said, I didn't know I had a godfather. We're Jewish. How can I have a godfather? Because I was very sort of French and precise about things. (laughs) And he said, he's John, honey. And John was John Houston, who lived in a magnificent, in in an estate in Ireland with one house for his wife and children and one Mm. house for the grown-ups and the fancy guests. Mm. And and my father said, you'll see, he has children, horses, and dogs. You'll be very happy there. And in fact, his wife, Ricky Houston, who'd been a ballerina called Enrica Soma, um, I met that night. It was Christmas, just before Christmas 1959. I was 11. And I met this woman who was so much more motherly than my mother that I just decided immediately, okay, you'll be my mother. Hmm. And she had a little daughter who was then much smaller than me called Angelica, who would, of course, grow up to be Angelica Houston. Uh At that point, she was Angelica who took my little Lulu comic books. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a fair trade because I got her mother. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I had a feeling, just from reading what I've read um, about you and the book, 
um, I had a feeling that you weren't really close with your mother. Everything centered around your father. I mean, obviously that's edible, but still, (laughs) your mother seems to sort of not not, not be in the picture. Well, she was in the picture, but I don't think that she was really in her own picture. She was a stunningly beautiful woman who had gone on stage at the age of nine during the Depression to put food on the family's table. And she was a great beauty. She was very intelligent. She hated acting. She hated modeling. She hated being the person on show. And so these were her problems. And um, she and I didn't really relate so much. Um... I could talk forever about that. <laughs> well, um, uh, do, well, why did she do it if she hated all of that? Um, well, she did it from the age of nine until she was 19 because there was no choice. It was the Depression. She was beautiful and talented. Uh-huh. And it was go to work for the family. And um, as you see in the book, as the book goes on, my mother is valiant. She's a good woman, and she puts duty first. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes when you put duty first, you get just a little bit sour about it. Mm-hmm. Because perhaps you'd rather be doing something else. Yeah. So that informs a lot of her behavior in the, in the book. And when late in the book I find out what really happened that day in the south of France when I was five years old, I then understood, but it took me until I was 48 to understand why my mother wasn't too warm to me. Hmm. Do I dare ask, or you don't want to give yeah. away that? Uh... Oh, no, no, I, I, I mean, I, I can, it's an interesting thing, because obviously I've been on, I've spoken to various therapists over my life, and this thing kept coming up that one day when we lived in the south of France, the swimming pool had been emptied. My mother took me down into the pool. She had a butterfly net, and there was a a grasshopper stuck on the side of the pool in the silt. And she put the butterfly net over the grasshopper, and at that exact moment, my nanny called me for my bath. And the way it kept coming up with various therapists was that what I thought emotionally, what I knew emotionally, was that the next day my mother was not my mother anymore. She'd been replaced by someone else. Hmm. And various doctors tried to talk me out of this idea. No, she's not still in the pool with the butterfly net over the grasshopper 30 years later. You know. But uh-huh. in fact, after my mother died, I found out from my father that at that exact period and probably that that same day or the next morning she told my father that she wanted to leave him for someone else huh and he said to her fine you can go but i'm keeping joni hmm and she stayed and and you so then you, what you were saying, so then you felt like she resented you for that, that, she, that you yes, were keeping her. she had her. done the right thing, but she'd done the right thing, but I wasn't really, you know, what, who she wanted to be with. She wanted to be with Mr. X. Uh-huh. 
Hmm. So that kind of explains it explains it for me. <laughs> yes. It's interesting, though, that you have that image of her with the butterfly net over the grasshopper. I mean, was it that did you feel when you went to your nanny, did you feel that she was angry that you abandoned her? Or oh, no. I, no, I just went upstairs for my bath. There was, everything was normal. But the next morning, she was different. The next day when I saw her, she was different. I see. So the conversation with her, with your father, occurred in between those yeah. the butterfly net and the next morning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow! <laughs> you know, this is a uh, an analytic dream. <laughs> I'll tell you, isn't it? This is an a, a psychoanalytic yeah, dream. Yes, completely. <laughs> I, and what's so interesting, you know, I, the original manuscript of the book, the first draft was a thousand and fifty pages. Huh. Well. And my editor, Peter Borland, gave me a great editing note. He said, you don't have to say what you did the rest of the week. <laughs> yes. So basically it was get back in there and tell the story. Don't tell the stories of everyone you've ever loved mm-hmm. and yeah. everyone you've ever known. So I went back in, and as I sliced away, taking out 600 pages, uh various themes emerged that were very psychoanalytic mm, mm. that you would have fun with. One is a guardian angel that, who appears in a um, 19th well, Joan, century... Well, before you go into... I think we need to leave people on a cliffhanger with that because okay. I don't know if you heard the music, but we need to take a break right now. Okay. So we will be back, leaving everyone on a cliffhanger. I want to know what happened what, about those other 600 pages, too. You, you should have made it like a three... A three-book series or something. My guest is Joan Juliet Buck. Her book uh, is The Price of Illusion, coming out today. And we will be back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, here today with Joan Juliet Buck, talking about her memoir, which just came out today, called The Price of Illusion. Um, I didn't have a chance, obviously, to get it before today, but I will be running to the store <laughs> to get it after this because it is just so delicious. And uh, these 400 pages, I mean, you know, and so today, obviously, on this our show, we're not going to have a chance to, you know, we're going to talk about, uh, well, the highlights that Joan would like to talk about mm-hmm. in The Price of Illusion. And, um, and then, of course, um, you know, not to mention not being able to talk about the other 600 pages yet, but I have a feeling you're going to somehow find a way to get those <laughs> into a book, too. So why don't you take, continue where we left off? Well, oh, yeah. okay, so I was talking about this 19th century children's book that gave me a, a, a kind of, um, <clears throat> that gave me a moral spine when I was seven years old huh. um, about, you know, telling the difference between right and wrong. And it made me sometimes a sort of scolding little child. And during my father's champagne years, when he had discovered Peter O'Toole, he'd founded a company with him. They made all these movies, um, Beckett, Lion in Winter, What's New Pussycat, How to Steal a Million Dollars, The Ruling Class. Peter was the biggest star in the world. My father was what was called a platinum producer, an American in London who was so grand that he became British. Uh-huh. Um, and it was Peter O'Toole was the most charismatic, handsome, brilliant, fabulous creature. His wife, Sean Phillips, an actress just as beautiful, just as charismatic. The two of them took over my education. I'd never heard of Greta Garbo. They took me to see her. Mm-hmm. They took me to see when I was 11 years old. Marlena Dietrich in concert. They they gave me books about acting and theater and poetry. Uh-huh. Um, meanwhile, everything was Don Perignon champagne and movie premieres. Peter had a giant uh, Daimler, which was better than a Rolls Royce. Hmm. My father was discreet and had a Rover, but the <laughs> Rover was upholstered with a certain kind of woolen material so that the leather would not make his suit shine. (laughs) It was all very grand. Everyone was famous. John Steinbeck would come to dinner. I was most impressed. I said, I want adults to make me laugh. James Thurber came to dinner one night. Oh, wow. Um, This is better than Eloise. This is better than Eloise. (laughs) And when I was... I was in school um, when I, Tom Wolfe had come to London. He wrote me letters saying, come to Rotten Gotham, which is what he called New York. I applied to Sarah Lawrence. Then I had a little bit of time, so I became press agent, press, yeah, the press girl for Jeanne Moreau, mm. who was in a film that my father was making about Catherine the Great, with, of course, Peter O'Toole. And these were fabulous years. 
particularly fabulous for mom and dad, Peter and his wife. There was this whole tribe that was like a big family riding on this success. Wow. And then my father, uh, they made this film, The Ruling Class, which Peter thought was a masterpiece. And it was too long. And my father had to cut it down for it to get distribution, which he did behind Peter's back. And that broke their relationship, which had been going on for 15 years. And that was the beginning of the end of everything. Hmm. And I, he, he also bought back the movie, which meant that the very good art that my parents had bought was suddenly disappearing off the walls. And I'd say to my mother when I'd go back to my parents' house, because I wasn't living in London anymore, I'd say, oh, you know, where's, the, where's that painting? Oh, it's on loan, darling, my mother would say, because uh. she always pretended things were good. And after almost 30 years in Europe, my parents moved back to Los Angeles, which they had left in 1952. And they were people who didn't have any money anymore. And they didn't have any status anymore. And they kept up a very good front. They were as charming and elegant and gracious and classy as they had always been. But in Los Angeles, they were not treated with much respect. Mm. And my father was very depressed after he lost everything because he was a man very attached to success and appearances. He didn't have any hobbies. He didn't have anything in his life <clears throat> except making movies and creating illusions and making Peter O'Toole into a movie star. And when that was gone... He had nothing, so he was very depressed. And one day in 1983, four guys got into their apartment in Los Angeles, pistol-whipped him. My mother got them out. She got out of bed, and she got them out of the apartment. But that tipped my father. And the next thing was that he thought he was possessed by a Kodiak bear. Huh. And a Kodiak bear he had once when he was in the Aleutians making a film with John Huston during the war, a Kodiak bear had broken into the, the soldier's tent and terrified everyone. Wait, in, in real life or in a movie? In real life. It huh. had happened during the war. And he used to talk about it as a joke. But then in 1984... Um, just, you know, sure, about a year after this episode with the break-in, he, um, he suddenly became possessed, he thought, with this, by this Kodiak bear. It's so interesting not, because of the symbolism, you know, like the bear attacking him and, and so on. Yeah. After the, and, after the robbery, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, you know, about nine months after the robbery. Mm -hmm. He was, I thought he was coming out of the depression. I'd seen him in New York at Christmas, and he seemed to be cheerier. Mm -hmm. But that cheeriness just turned into a manic state. And then he had the bear thing. I wasn't around. And my mother picked me up at the airport. I'd come out to see them for their anniversary. And... 
she picked me up at the airport, and I asked where Dad is. And she'd she'd had um she'd had a cataract operation, and she had found some guy to be the driver to drive her. Somebody she was paying not much money, and we get in the back of the car, and she has to tell me that this has happened to my father. Mm. But she doesn't want the guy driving <laughs> to hear. Uh-huh. So she starts telling me in French. Uh-huh. But her French isn't that good anymore. And I don't know what she's talking about. Huh. Beca- because she's saying, vote for a pair, a tank, a horse. Yes, I was just going to say, yes. And, and, uh. and I'm saying, what are you talking about? And she's going, shh, and she's pointing to the back of the driver's seat. Because the driver mustn't know. Yes. And anyway, this whole thing is described. It was horrendous to write and far worse to live through and far worse for my mother and my father to live through. Um, And I got him to a psychiatrist who put him on lithium who said he was manic depressive. Mm -hmm. And then my father would start telling the psychiatrist about the Pink Marble Palace outside of Paris and Peter O'Toole and Fellini and the Golden Heart. Oh, and the psychiatrist thought he was just, this was just his manic rantings, right? Yes, and the psychiatrist called me up and, and he said, you know, what, I, I don't believe what your father's saying. He's got these fantasies. And he told me about the harp and the palace. And I said, no, it's all true. Huh. So then the psychiatrist probably thought I was just as crazy as my father. <laughs> That's right. um, and he was on lithium from 1984 onwards. Now, do you think, and, looking back, let me just, I'm sorry to interrupt, but do you think looking back, because mani- manic depressive illness usually starts a little earlier, do you think maybe that was beginning at the time that he um, uh, sold the film um, behind Peter O'Toole's back and that that was kind of, that that was why he did it, that he was sort of, you know, beginning to have these manic, manic well, thinking. I, um, a really interesting thing when you are manipulating illusion is you must never believe it. Yeah. And Dad was pretty pragmatic about all the films they made, but Somehow the ruling class he fell in love with, and Peter fell in love with it, and he believed that this film had to be saved at all costs and did this thing that you never do, which is buying back your own film with your own money. Nobody does this. It's madness. So that could have been manic, but then the deeper question that you're asking is whether the intense energy... Yes. That someone has to apply to becoming a huge success yes. is not in itself manic. Yes, yes. I was thinking of that. So many movies, such huge movies. Yes. Yeah. So go ahead. So, so there you were uh, in L.A. now. Well, so I, I just go out to L.A. to see my parents and to find a doctor for dad. And then I go back to New York, and instead of writing comfortably eight pieces a year for the magazines, I was suddenly writing 22. Alex mm. Lieberman and Leo Lerman at Vogue were very kind and gave me as much, you know, all the work I could do and more. 
and I didn't really have a... I mean, I, I've never really drunk, so I would go out at night and go to these parties that were usually launches and celebrations of this, that, and I would come home at 11.30 and get back to work. And I did, you know, I wrote a lot of extra pieces between 84 and, well, 84, 85, uh, to take care of my parents, to take care of all the extra bills. And that was just normal. You know, I could do it. I wish that I was, I wish I'd been paid like a man instead of like a woman. Uh-huh. <laughs> Would have been easier. Um, and... Then, you know, then things got a bit better for my parents. My mother, who had decorated a lot, she decorated all the beautiful houses, you know, and offices and stuff for cheap films and for where we lived, uh, became a decorator in L.A. and began working and began doing pretty well. And I got the Paris Vogue job, and my father was kind of stabilized, and then my mother died in 96. And now I'm in Paris. I'm at French Vogue. I'm the editor-in-chief. I've got a nice apartment. And my father is a heartbroken widower in Los Angeles making bad left turns on Wilshire in the Subaru. Mm-hmm. And I think, no, I can't, I can't let him be that. I'm having, I've, you know, I've got the champagne all around me. Uh-huh. I've got the famous people everywhere. I can give him what he once had. Uh-huh. And there were a few moments where I tried to get him into the Hollywood home for the aged, but um, he didn't qualify because his credits were European and not American. Uh-huh. So, all right, I bring him to Paris. He lives with me in my apartment for a few months, but that is not really a good idea because um, he needs a lot of attention, and uh-huh. I was entirely consumed by Vogue. Right. So I got him an apart. I rented him an apartment. I found a wonderful woman to just hang out with him, Anita Clark, an, an Indian woman from London who would hang out with him and take him places and, you know, spend the days with him. And then, this is a beautiful story, and then Anita Clark says, I can cook, you know. So she begins to cook for these dinner parties I give for 30, 40, 50 people, full of movie stars, full of famous people, full of beautiful models, full of people who work for Vogue. And my father would come in, someone would rush to take his coat, he would sit down. Anita, who hung out with him every day, would have cooked a magnificent meal, and my father would say, as he's eating the dinner, he'd say, you know, she's really my chef, but I have her cook simpler things for me. <laughs> the illusion oh. was perfect. He believed it. He was so happy. Hmm. And thanks to Anita, I didn't have to spend my time with him. I could just see him on a Sunday. Right. And then he was more attached to, I mean... If I took on Vogue, it was probably it, so that I could take care of him, so that I could right. take care of my parents. And then I bring him to Paris, and I am taking care of him. And it's costing a lot of money. 
Um, right. But it doesn't matter because my sorrow at his humiliation when he lost everything was immense. Mm. And because I'd, had, I'd been a responsible little child from the age of three, yeah. I wanted to make it better for him. And this way I could. So it really didn't matter what it cost. And then... The only, well, the only problem with that was um, there was then this... It's in the prologue of the book. Um, I arrive in Milan in October 2000. I've been asked to see the, the chairman of the company before I go to the Prada show. And... I'm told that I have to um, take a two-month sabbatical, which in Condé Nast language means you're out. Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. Had... There's, the, <laughs> there's the music. <laughs> what timing? Okay. Well, none of us want you to be out. So um, when we come back, we will start right from there. Uh, okay. My guest is the amazing Joan Juliet Buck. Her book is The Amazing, The Price of Illusion, and now you are beginning to get the gist of just how, how beautiful and how profound this story is. So stay tuned. We will continue where we left off. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest is Joan Juliet Buck. We're hearing some highlights of her new book just released today um, that uh, obviously I am hoping that you will all go out and buy when this show is over, <laughs> as I will. The Price of Illusion. The Price of Illusion. And, um, and you're getting to see, you're getting to understand the, uh, how that, why that title, why that's the title. So, um, 
so we're, but there you are um, in Italy and um, working still as the editor of, of French Vogue and yeah, taking care of your father. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes, of, in Paris and taking care of your father. And there you are making a trip to Italy. So go ahead. There was, there was a very good, because, it, it, okay, I, until I took that job, I had not worked in an office for 16 years. Hmm. I had never had a staff. Um, I couldn't even fire a cleaning lady who was stealing. And so to be suddenly running a staff and schmoozing advertisers and being nice to contributors, I was exhausted by all Uh of this. Um, I'd call it inauthentic contact with people. Right. Because it was all to get things done. And so I would be so tired, and I started going to the spa in northern Italy, Dr. Cheneau in Merano. And Dr. Cheneau, where I also brought my father and Anita, um, it, it had all kinds of special herbal remedies, and one of them was this seawater serum de canton that comes in clear glass vials where you break off one side and then you tip it over a glass and you break the other side and the seawater shoots out and you drink it and it balances your electrolytes. So this was one of the things that I did. And so at a certain point in Paris, um, there were, first of all, you know, an American running Paris Vogue, they were not wildly happy about yes, this. Yes, that's what I was saying at the beginning. Just that exactly. goes against and the French, you know, yeah, uh, and way of doing things. Because, <laughs> because I had arrived completely alone to do this job. No staff, nobody, no support system. I had some friends in Paris, but they weren't people I could work with. Um, so all I knew was how to keep myself as a writer who spent all her days alone. I knew how to keep myself happy. And I had a few woo-woo things. And one of them was, if people have been very negative around you, you light a smudge stick, a bundle of cedar or sage. It's a Native American thing. You light it, the smoke purifies the air. So about a week into my time at French Vogue, everybody's being slightly negative. One day, lunchtime, I lock my office door and I light a sage smudge stick <laughs> to purify the air. Mm. And I make it burn, and the smoke is everywhere, and then I open the windows to flap out the smoke. It does not occur to me for a second that people will think that I have been smoking marijuana. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to say that think, when, the, when it went out the window that they thought there was a fire. Oh, no. dear. Okay, yes. And I think human resources began to keep the dossier on me that day, smoked marijuana at lunchtime. Uh. And so between that and the seawater vials, these clear glass vials that appeared a few years later, if you were inclined to hate me and if you were inclined to gossip, and God knows in the fashion world that's occupation number one, you could easily cook up a story where this American who speaks French, who's running Vogue, is actually a drug addict. Oh, God. I mean, it's funny, but it wasn't funny for you at the time because you still needed to to support your father. Yes, and I had no idea. I only heard about the seawater 
afterwards from a very mm. good friend mm. who told me somebody had seen my syringes in my handbag. Uh, and the night he told me, I took a vial of seawater out of my bag, and I said, it's probably this. So, um, uh, so to get back to the moment in Milan where I'm told that I have to take a sabbatical, boom, it's over, um, I think, oh, my God, I'm going to have to be a writer again. I've had a holiday from writing for almost seven years. I have to get back to work. But I have not had a single real experience in seven years. I've been watching fashion shows and going to cocktail parties and making small talk. And my feet have been mashed in shoes that are agony. And that's the only thing. I'm not just going to write about my feet. (laughs) What am I going to do? At which point I am handed a piece of paper with one word on it. It says cottonwood. And I say, what's this? And I'm told there's a lot of good therapy there. And because I'm a positive thinker, I think, oh, my God, the chairman of the company knows how much it's going to hurt for me to lose my job. He wants me to get therapy about it. Uh And then I say, why? And he says, well, I don't want you to end up like, and he named somebody who had died of a cocaine overdose during an orgy. And I look at him and I say, that's not anything to do with me, but he'd been told that I was some kind of addict. To this day, I don't know what kind of addict. Mm -hmm. And it was a rehab. However, I had spent all my money on my father. Ah. So if I went, if I didn't go, it constituted quitting. And if you quit, you don't get severance. And the only important thing to me was taking care of Dad. Yeah. And I also thought, this is going to be kind of interesting. I've been on show, watching a show for seven years. It's always the same show. In America, I'm going to see people who aren't stoned, who aren't high, who aren't (laughs) showing off their, their fashion acumen to me. Uh-huh. I'm going to see raw people in a raw place. I'm going to meet human beings again. Hmm. And so I went to Cottonwood in southern Arizona. And you discovered that it... Well, did you, did you discover before you got there that it was um, for the treatment of addiction or just when you got there? Well, I, I mean, I sort of figured it out, uh-huh. but then when I got there and they confiscated my vials of seawater <laughs> and my endless little bottles of herbal remedies <sighs> and my sheet of 6.25 Xanax that I carry because of jet lag <laughs> uh. to sleep, you know, the night you arrive and the night after and then yeah. you're okay. But they took that away. They even took away my deodorant because it had alcohol in it. And uh. I said, what, you think I'm going to drink my deodorant? No, but your roommate might. And I said, but I have roommates? And <laughs> This is they, far from they, the pink palace, right? Yeah, and they took my blood, and they took my urine, and then the director of the rehab tried to throw me out. She said, you have no reason to be here. And I said, you know what? I want to stay. I have nowhere else to go, and mm. I think this is going to be pretty interesting. Anyway, my father's manic-depressive. I might be as well. Mm. Isn't there a test? 
So, so I took the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality uh-huh. Trait, uh, which came back. Um, these findings are so normal as to be almost abnormal. Although she does seem a little paranoid, she answered yes to people are plotting against me. <laughs> well, you know, I'm noticing the time. Um, I would, I could listen to you for hours. Uh, of course, that's why you wrote the book. But anyhow, um, I just—I listened to myself for six years. You know. <laughs> well, I just want to—you know—I don't want to give too much away, but I just want to yeah. say that um, the the part about so I know we're skipping over a lot, but yeah. um, you you went to you eventually got back went back to America and became the editor of the American Vogue. No, right? no, no. Movie, a TV critic. Okay, TV critic in the American yeah. Vogue. Where and I had been working since 1980 up until I went to French Vogue. And then I just started up again. I had been the movie critic before French Vogue, and now I became the TV critic because I lived in Santa Fe. So the, the TV shows could come to me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And... Um, and then there was this, this uh, brouhaha at the American Vogue related to politics, which is so kind of interesting given the state of America today. Um, and, and you were sort of, uns- you said, how did you describe it? For two years, it was, the, it was the dark, okay. You spent the next two years as a pariah. Yeah. And, and that was, it was during dur- this dark and hopeless time that you decided to do two things, write this book and find joy. And we're all happy that you <laughs> decided to write this book. But, mm-hmm. um, oh my. But, um, I guess it was before that then, I mean, you, you talk about the passing of your father. So when you went to Cottonwood, did your father stay in France or did he come to Yeah, the my state? father stayed in France and I, I told him this really lame lie because he was then 83, uh, a manic depressive whose lithium wasn't really working anymore. You know mm. how that goes after 20 mm. years. Um, mm-hmm. And he was so attached to the life with Vogue. So I said that I was going, that I was, had been asked to take a sabbatical, and I was going on a biking trip in Laguna Beach. Don't ask why I said huh. biking at Laguna Trip. And my father was very acute. He could see through it. But off I went, having told this really stupid lie. I'm a really bad liar. And Anita stayed with him, and then I came back. And once I was no longer the editor of Paris Vogue, my father degenerated very quickly. Mm. Um, I said, we're going back to America. Where do you want to go? And he said, L.A. I said, what about Santa Fe? Because I thought Santa Fe would be kind of healthier and nicer. And if, uh-huh. he, if he went wandering, it would be like a safer place to wander than L.A. Mm-hmm. And he said, huh, stay in stay in New Mexico long enough, you're seeing flying saucers. (laughs) And I went to America to figure out where we were going to live, which was February, March 2001. And then his landlady began calling me and saying that he was acting very strange. And I came back to Paris, and he he was not in good shape. Um, The dementia that had added itself to the manic depression, had gotten really bad. Mm. And I found a place for him 
to stay while I went back to America to try and find a house in Santa Fe, which I did. And he had a wonderful room, and there was a room next to him for whoever the lady would be taking care of him. And then he died. And you made this um, party to a celebration of his life that yes. was described as yeah, one last so I went illusion. Back. During the time that he was sick in the hospital, I would sleep on various friends' floors. And then my friend Charlotte Rampling said to me, okay, your father's just died. You're not sleeping on anybody's floor. You're staying in a really nice hotel. So I stayed at the Lancaster, which is a beautiful hotel, and she said, you've got to give a party for jewels. Mm. So I gave a huge party in the garden of the Lancaster Hotel, with all of his favorite food, and tequila, because I know from experience that when someone has died, when you're, when you're coming from a funeral, you must give people tequila, because otherwise they get morose. But if they drink mm. tequila, they get kind of inspired. Mm. And it was a huge party. It was full of movie stars. My father... <clears throat> um, my father had told me that I didn't have to pay his doctor because he'd given him the boat and one of the apartments in Monte Carlo. And I had a hell of a time persuading the doctor that there were no apartments in Monte Carlo and no boats. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh dear. And now we have a hell of a time ending. But that's a wonderful ending, and that's such a beautiful story that because you know that your father was looking down and happy that in fact, you had uh, continued this illusion and, and the party in his honor, his in memoriam, and, um, and kept him on that same level that he had been during the Champagne years. Indeed. Exactly. And now all we need is to tell people where you would like them. I mean, this is going to be a bestseller. And um, you shouldn't wait for the movie, folks, or the television serial. <laughs> buy the book. And where would you like people to buy it? I mean, of course people can buy it on Amazon, but would you like uh, them to go to in- independent stores or buy it? I would. Uh, Amazon and your independent bookstores. I live in upstate New York. I'm all for Oblong in Rhinebeck. Um. Okay. The, the Square in uh, Oxford, Mississippi, Parnassus in Nashville. Um, I don't know all the bookstores everywhere. Your local bookstore or Amazon, buy it. And you know what? Buy the hardcover yes. uh, instead of the Kindle because the photos are really beautiful. Many of them are taken by my father who'd started as a photographer. Many of them have never before been seen, and they're much easier to see in the hardback. Well, I would certainly second that. I'm a fan of hardbacks over softbacks and over ebooks. So, again, the name of the book is The Price of Illusion, and my charming guest is Joan Juliet Buck. I wish you all the best with this. And, um, again, I, I so admire you for all that you did throughout your life trying to, in, in, trying to keep your father happy and, and uh, to keep up this illusion, even though, uh, as you talk about in the book, even though... Of course, you lost some of yourself in the process. Thank you for having me. This was great. Oh, it was a lot of fun, and I'm, I was so happy to do it again. As I said, I could listen to you for hours. Um, <laughs> and thank you all for listening. Again, the name of the book is The Price of Illusion. So thank you so much, Joan, and thank you all for listening. 
Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 